Not a single one of you corrected me. And I bet y'all thought, well, what difference did it make if the guy above him and the guy below him went camping? Not a single one of you corrected me until I said it to Jimmy Hope. And Jimmy said, you mean K.I.? So thank you, Jimmy. One friend, one friend here among this whole group. What difference did it make if the guy above and the guy below went camping? They just got a weekend off. Maybe I don't know. Not a single one of you corrected me. Okay, we can get on with this now that I got that off my chest. Yeah, 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 I prayed that a little bit. God forgive them, for they know not what they did. When I was interim pastor over at Ropes uh, several years ago, I was there for two years. And uh, Janet Pollitt's mother, Levita Reem, sat right back there. And every time I would say something, and I did it pretty often, when I would say something, get my words tangled up, I would see her write it down in her notebook. She kept a very thorough record of all those moments. I don't know where the book is, but uh, I guess she was planning on using them. She hasn't yet, but it's not over, so... There were many of those moments when I just stumbled over my tongue. And there still are plenty of them. So if y'all want to write them down, just feel free. This past week, there was one scripture that just would not leave me. It is from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I will be returning to this in just a second. But this passage would not leave me. And I want you to know I tried to get it to leave me because I could not figure out and still don't. I honestly don't know. I don't have a clue what God's doing this morning. A lot of times when the message has a lot of weight to it, it, where it feels significant, I get it. This morning, I don't fully get it, but somebody out here will. God would not have been this persistent with this scripture if he didn't have someone's heart, someone's life he wanted to specifically touch this morning. This is the scripture, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Man, this is one of those standard verses that when we're talking to someone about salvation, talking to someone about giving their life to Christ and accepting him for the first time, this is one of those scriptures that we go to. The message would not come, but the verse was persistent. I kept saying, okay, Lord, if this is the verse... Talk to me. Tell me. He wouldn't tell me. And I found myself, and I find myself now in a strange place, not fully knowing what God is trying to say and the message behind this verse. My lack of understanding when God does this is each time the beginning of someone's salvation or someone's healing, someone's deliverance or someone's miracle. When I don't know what's going on, God is moving Bigger than my mind and my heart can understand. Something is going on this morning. And if I begin to say things that sound very familiar to you, I would ask you in earnest to begin to pray for the others around you. Because God is speaking a very specific word this morning. Someone's life is about to be radically changed. I studied a good while on David and about his going up to the house of Obed-Edom to recover the Ark of the Covenant, because I was certain that this is what God was going to have me share this morning. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines because of the things that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had done. They were in battle and losing the battle. 
And so they thought, well, if we can just get the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God into the battle, then we will win. Well, we know the story. They came and got the Ark of the Covenant. They marched it into battle. And the Philistines promptly took it from them, and they lost. And when the message came back to Eli, that not only had the Ark of the Covenant been taken, but that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were both dead, he fell off the bench where he was sitting, and he died. And the person there with him said, Ichabod, Ichabod, the glory has departed. I knew with certainty that this was the basis of a message, because David's retrieval of that Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6 had this profound word to me. The word, don't let the glory stay behind you. Don't let the glory leave, or don't leave the glory behind you, I guess is the way I best say it. I don't know how many of us as Christians find that to be true. The glory of God was designed in each one of us to be put on display. Not by what we do, but by the person that we are. We have to get that right. If we believe it's based on what we do, we will get busy and do many, many things that have nothing to do with God. But when we discover who we are in relationship to Him, things will begin to change immediately. He has such a desire that we know that. But I know many, many believers who have left the glory behind them. The day when they were saved is really, truly a very, very distant memory. And since that day, there hasn't been much that's occurred in their life. Or at least much that has to be explained by God. Most of it is explained by us and what we're doing and how we're doing it. So how many of us have done exactly that? The glory of God in man, that we were created in His image to put Him on display. It's not even hard to tell what happened when the glory departed. If you want to know whether the glory's departed from you or not, it's not hard to tell. Because one of the biggest things that will happen when the glory departs is that the petty things of our life will become the biggest things. We will major on the petty things. And we will spend little time on the major things of the kingdom. Brokenness will strangely find a place of acceptance within our life when the glory has departed. We will begin to accept something far less than God ever intended. And our lives will seem routine and mundane if the glory has departed. But in that study, and I mean I was in the middle of that study, at that point, when God says, Romans 10, 9, I'm not going to change my mind. Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you will be rescued. You will be saved. So we'll begin this morning in Romans chapter 10. Go, you're probably already there. We'll begin with verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. From Romans 9, if we were to flip back a page to like verses 1, 2, and 3 of Romans 9, it would be extremely apparent that Paul's heart is broken over the condition of his people and here expresses his great desire. He's broken hearted over the condition of his people, of Israel. I've shared with you, and I, and I will do it again. I'll do it every time God prompts me to do it. About the time I became your pastor, shortly after I, I came here eight and a half years ago, God gave me a very strange vision. The vision was very simple. The truth was that many, and I would even almost roll that over to most, but many people who are sitting in pews this morning, who have said that they're Christians, were never saved. And I don't tell you that 
to alarm you. I don't do that to make you doubt the reality of your own experience. But I've shared with you before, these topics come up. Because God wants you to be able to examine your life and be certain of where you stand in your relationship with Him. It's not about doubt, it's about certainty. It's about assurance. It's about the reality that when I become sure of my salvation, it's very difficult then for the glory not to shine. This is about assurance. And he wants that to be evident. And Paul's heart is broken. Now he's looking into the face of the most religious people on the face of the earth and saying, I'm concerned that they're not saved. And his heart was broken because they had never been rescued. Verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He's saying these are busy people. These are people going about the work of God. They have a great zeal for God. Sounds a whole lot like the Christian church today. A lot of effort, a lot of determination, a lot of plans, a lot of goals being set, a lot of zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He's alluding to the well-meaning of His people, notwithstanding that they were spiritually blind, for they had just rejected Christ. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. How is that most evident? Most churches, and I'm not speaking along a denominational line, most churches, based on the nature of the people who are attending, are determined to create a church in their own image. Determined to create a church in their own image so that the music that is done is music they like. What the things are done are things that are pleasing to them and as best as possible to be out of here by 12 o'clock. We have designed church in our image. I really wonder, I truly wonder, we talked about this in Bible study this morning, I truly wonder what the church looks like that God had in His mind. I wonder if it would be buildings set on corners with green grass. I really wonder if the church would look like this. The church that God had in mind when Jesus came. Again, verse 3. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believes. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. Say not in thy heart, who shall ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? What does it say? The word is nigh unto thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believes on me shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that will call on Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I need to ask you this morning. That word saved in Greek is the word sozo, and it means to rescue. But to rescue from what? That, that, that word saved comes up in verse 9, it comes in verse 1, it comes in verse 13. And it's apparent in, in the Christian world that many don't understand the word and its abundant meaning because we have to understand that we have been rescued from something for it to be a legitimate rescue. There had to be something that was really dangerous. There had to be something that was really perilous. 
And we know first and foremost that when Jesus came to shed His blood for us, He came to rescue us from our sin, from our life, from the rebellion in our heart. He came to save us from sin so that we could restore a relationship with God. The sin that has separated us, the sin that had broken the relationship, had to be dealt with. It was dealt with by the blood of His Son. And you and I, we understand the Scriptures. We know what they say. The wage of sin is death. We know that this has to be dealt with. So the gift was given to us of eternal life through Jesus Christ and by His blood. But that gift has to be received. If you're sitting here today and you know that you have never received that gift of God, that you have never accepted for yourself that reality, then your sin is still in place. And the turmoil and the torment that the sin creates is still very much a part of your story. And you feel that there is no victory over it. We are also rescued from self-effort and all of our attempts to be right with God. We were rescued from desperation. We were rescued from hopelessness. We were rescued from fear. We were rescued from shame. We were rescued from regret. If those things are going on in my life, we at least have to wonder, why? Where is it coming from when it says in the Scripture that His righteousness becomes my righteousness? We talked about that as well in Bible study. Man, that is a concept that we don't get. Because everything in this Scripture is talking about an exchange. My life laid down. His life picked up. My life surrendered that He might be present and live in this body. That that which I could not do, He is willing to do and ready to do. It's about a great exchange. So what happened? My righteousness and the awfulness of it was exchanged for His righteousness. We sang it. His blood runs through my veins. His righteousness has been imputed to me. What does that mean? It means every miracle that He ever did within the New Testament is now on my record and in my ledger. Isn't that amazing? His righteousness imputed to me. If that ever sinks past our brain, if it ever drops 18 inches to our heart, it will drastically change our life. That I'm not righteous because of me. I'm righteous because of Him. Does it tell us something? When most of the Christian world finds itself in that list somewhere, desperate, hopeless, in fear, ashamed, or living in regret, when Jesus came to set us free. So how does the Scripture say it comes? It says it comes by confessing. That word in Greek means to profess or openly declare and speak freely of the worship of one worthy to be praised. Check yourself against that standard. Check yourself against that word, confess. Ask yourself if what happened in your life, whenever it occurred, years ago, is that what happened in your life? Are you then and now willing to openly declare and openly profess and speak freely of the worship of one worthy to be praised? Are you open and ready to express it, to declare it, to confess it? And please understand, this is not a recitation from your mouth. This is a willful determination that I will live in an open, professed declaration that Jesus is my Savior. Let me read it again. This is a willful determination that I will live in an open, professed declaration that Jesus is my Savior. There must be agreement, not for a moment, but for a lifetime. 
You see, we didn't get to say it once and dismiss it from that point. This is that reason that I teach that there is no such thing as a sinner's prayer. You will not find it in the Scripture. We have held the sinner's prayer up to be that means by which salvation has come, and it's not even found in the New Testament. There's not a single person saved with a prayer in the New Testament. And I will tell you that it's okay if you pray at the moment of salvation, but what has happened in the Christian church that has made this such a difficult problem is that when we say that you can be saved by a prayer, I wonder how many people have, are now believing that they're saved simply because the preacher or some teacher said a prayer and they didn't even know what to pray. They just repeated it and we put a check by their name saying that one's saved. Had no encounter, had no reality of sin, felt no weight of the sin, no conviction of sin, just prompted in that moment, do you want to be saved? Yes, well repeat after me. And we put a check by their name. I don't know whether they were saved or not. But I do know that we have allowed prayer to become the means by which salvation has come. And it's never found within the Scripture. It says confess. Not one time. Not, not in a prayer. But you're confessing not only in that moment, but for a lifetime that Jesus is my Savior. Do you think that would radically change the Christian church? If we began to live each day under the confession that we made once to become a Christian, that that confession cannot be stopped because it has an eternal reality so that someday when I'm standing at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm still saying the same thing, that I confess with my mouth that you are my Savior when we're standing there in front of Jesus. There has to be a personal moment. It's kind of strange when we come to verse 8. You don't have to go back there, but there's two times in verse 8 we come across the word, word. We need to understand that word, word, in that verse. It must be clear that that particular word in Greek is the word rhema. If we went a little further into John 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That word is rhema. What is rhema? It is God's truth. It is God's word that becomes relevant to me. Because it's spoken with a fresh voice. It's a new word from God. It is a word that comes from his mouth, but, and it has to be relevant to me. What, is, what difference does that make? Because there has to be a moment in every one of our lives when God's word, this word, becomes relevant to you and I. And the only way that that can happen is by the rhema word of God. There has to be a personal invitation. And God's convicting power by the work of the Holy Spirit for someone to be saved. And God is doing that this morning in someone's life. And I'm not sure who it is. Thank goodness I don't know who it is. I don't have the privilege of knowing what God is doing in this moment. He sees what I don't see. He hears what I don't hear. And He knows what I don't know. But someone is waking up to the reality this morning that there was no personal word from God. There was no moment when God really spoke to me, brought that conviction, brought that weight. I simply went through the motions. I recited what somebody told me. Well, I want to tell you, that's okay. But please understand there's a lot riding on this moment of determination when you're saved. If you know in that moment that you were saved, stand with confidence and assurance and let that confession continue. If you know that you're one of those that recited something and you had no idea what it was that you were saying, at least let God speak to you about it. We confess. And then it says, if we believe with our hearts. That's not a maybe, that's an and. If we confess and we believe. When someone comes into my office 
we discover that they're not saved and they want to be. That they're sitting there under that conviction and they want to be. I don't ask them, do you want to pray? I ask them what was asking the scripture when Jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? What the eunuch was told by Philip when he asked the same question. And Philip says, do you believe with all your heart? Or are you reserving a corner for something else? Because the only way this works is to believe with all your heart. Not confusing, not difficult. When I used to fly a lot, and I've just gotten to where I hate it, but I still do it if I need to, but I just do not like to fly anymore. But there's a moment, usually, I didn't know this moment very often, because usually when I sit down on the plane, because I have to get up so early, I get to Lubbock, sit down on the plane, and before that plane ever took off, I was asleep. There's a lot of fear about sleeping on planes. Especially if you wake up and there's a drool spot on your shirt, you know, it's like, this has not been a good flight. But there was a moment on every flight when that airplane would go down the runway and it would begin to get speed. And based on the tilt of the wing, amazing thing would happen. The law of gravity would give away to the laws of aerodynamics. The right speed, the right moment, the laws of aerodynamics would take over and gravity was defeated. What would have happened in the moment when you were in the air, if you decided, I don't like the, the laws of aerodynamics anymore. I'm going to get out here. This, the, yeah, the law has changed. Yes, life has changed. Yes, I'm flying 25,000 feet above the earth. But I'm tired of this law of aerodynamics. I want to change. I want to go back to the other. What happens when you open the door? I guarantee you the law of gravity is still very much there. Isn't it strange that, that God has come to so radically change our lives so that we could fly and we keep opening the door to the laws of the world. I'm just going to do a little demonstration and I hope, 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 hope I don't make a mess over here. If I do, who's going to take the blame? I need to know before I start. All right, Carla, Leland, good. This is just cooking oil and this is just water. What immediately begins to happen in this bottle? They begin to separate. If you work in the oil field at all, you understand that principle very well. Look at what's happening. The oil is rising. There's a little bit of interface. The water's on the bottom. What happens when I shake it up? I can mix it and mix it and mix it. What's going to happen? Take a little while because I've got it bubbling. What will happen? We know the answer to this. It will separate. How was our godliness intended to mix with worldliness? It wasn't. It wasn't designed to mix. I wonder how many of us sitting here today under the confession that Jesus has radically changed our life and has become our Savior. I wonder how many of us have made a lot of room or leaving a little room for the worldliness, hoping that it, will, that it will be okay and that it will coexist with the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. What's the truth of the matter? They will not mix. The godliness and the righteousness of God cannot accept the worldliness of man. I'm not talking about being angry. I'm not talking about being bitter toward one another or hateful. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that happens in you. If you're able to accept worldliness and tolerate it easily, I wonder where the water is. I wonder why there's no separation. You see, we were very much, very, very much designed not to live divided, but to live separated. How much worldliness are we willing to accept? How much is he willing to accept? I don't know the answer to that for you. What do we truly believe? It says that this happens because we believe that his righteousness that now flows through my veins will ever accept less than all of my heart. John 1.17 states that Jesus came that we might believe, and we cannot believe without him. But can we live without a genuine burning in our hearts for him? That's probably the stranger question that plagues most of us. 
is where's the passion for Christ? Where's that, that eagerness, that just absolute readiness to stand before Him with a yes in our hearts instead of having to be convinced to do something in, in our relationship with Him? Do the actions of our life demonstrate that we believe? Why do they tell the world that we believe? And I, don't, I can't answer these for you. I don't know what's happening in you. This, I guess, I can tell you with some certainty. That this morning, if God's going to bring such focus to confess with your mouth and, be- mouth and believe with your heart, and you'll be rescued. If God's going to shine that light on that verse the way that he has all week, I'm just going to trust that when we begin to sing in just a second, that if that's you, that you will have the courage in this moment, by the conviction of this, of this word that God has sent toward you, I'm going to ask everyone to sit. Don't stand up this morning. You're standing and coming forward. Yes, will be seen by everyone. It needs to be seen by everyone. If you will confess, declare openly that Jesus is your Savior, He will rescue you. I'm not concerned that no one will come because I'm certain that what God intended to do this morning, He has done. He has brought the reality of this to some heart, to some mind, to some life, and wondering if we will have the, the faith to stand and come and talk to me. I look over here at Calvin, and Calvin is a good man. He drove by the house one day. I was out in, the, out in the yard working, and I saw him, and boy, something just compelled me. So I got in my pickup, and I backed out, and I kind of followed him home. He, he was probably already there by the time I got in my pickup. But I walked through his back gate, and he said, I knew you were coming. I sit there on, on, on his back porch and was able to witness the moment when Calvin said yes to God and accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. No doubt. No uncertainty. By faith he demonstrated. I know many of your stories. But no one can examine it but you. And what is God telling you this morning about your story? This is an important day for someone. Maybe for several. This is an important day. If you're assured of your salvation, pray for others. If not, let God speak. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. I want to tell you this morning, there's not anything that you can contract, that you can have, that God cannot heal. There is no state, there is no condition, there is no situation that, that is bigger than God. He, whatever you can get, He can heal. And we just see the evidence of it. Thank you all again for being here. Just a remarkable day. Lord, we thank you this morning for what you have done. Heart stirred because... The fruit of this is going to be produced. I don't have any doubt. Someone's heart is so stirred this morning that they're not going to be able to leave this alone. And I thank you, Lord, for that today. The salvation will come. It will be done, Lord, as you designed by belief and by confession. We thank you for this teaching this morning and your persistence on this word. In Jesus' name, amen.